Well, today we're going to continue in our series in the Gospel of John. There are four, four Gospels in the New Testament, and these each tell the story of Jesus' life and his teachings and his death and his resurrection. And John is a bit unique. It's got a different style. It's very poetic. It's structured a bit differently than the other ones. And so we're diving into John. We've been at it for, for a few weeks now. And I just want to remind us of what the purpose of this uh, gospel is. The purpose is that the readers would know that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that in believing in Jesus would have life. And friends, that is always our invitation, to, to know Jesus and to experience abundant life in Jesus. And so that's what we get to be a part of today. When's the last time you experienced an incredibly chaotic scene? I mean morning? Yeah, I was going to say they happen at the breakfast table trying to get ready in the morning. They happen all the time in our lives, but I'm thinking back to a particularly chaotic scene that I've experienced a number of different ways, a number of different nuances, but in Nicaragua, uh, we were on a mission trip there with a bunch of teenagers and a few chaperones. That's always how it works out, and it's always a little chaotic in general, Uh, but here we are. One of the cultural experiences was to go to this market. And I remember some of the local uh, pastors and leaders pulling us together to have this talk. Here's what you're going to experience when you enter the market. Now, it was massive. And I mean, there was hundreds of vendors. And many of them are selling the exact same things. So they're calling out for your attention, trying to get you over. Uh, they talked us through how, how to negotiate. You need to understand that they're coming in at this price and you're going to have to negotiate to here. And then they even paired a lot of kids up. A lot of people felt really uncomfortable. I don't know how to go in and engage this. And so they paired people up with local people that we could kind of experience it together. But it was a scene that was just overwhelming. You walk through and you see all these things that look like incredible high-end fashion designer things. None of them are actually that, you know. Uh, But you're wandering through here seeing all these beautiful things, all these people hollering at you, grabbing at you, pulling you towards them because they have something they want to sell you. I remember the chaos of that scene. And today we engage a very interesting text. It's a market operating probably somewhat like that except in the temple courts. Today we engage uh, John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get those out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words Jesus had spoken. 
Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. If prior to reading this text today, I would have asked you, what's your view of Jesus? When you think of Jesus, what do you picture? I think one of the ones that comes to my mind is Jesus kneeling down and inviting a child onto his knees, speaking words of blessing, engaging, locking eyes with a kid, while all the powerful people around him are like, why would he spend his time there? That's one of the images of Jesus. I think of Jesus sitting at a Pharisee's home, one of the the ruler's homes, and uh, this sinful woman comes in, and uh, she's weeping, and she's wetting his feet with her tears and washing them. It's this chaotic, kind of, in many ways, culturally, and just in reality, kind of a gross scene, just this weird scene taking place, and Jesus locking eyes with her and creating space at this table for this woman in that moment. Those are the images I see of Jesus, and yet, here today in our text, we see an entirely different picture of Jesus. He enters the temple courts, and he just starts wrecking things. He's throwing tables, and he's yelling, and he's driving the animals out. What in the world is happening in this text? He even made a whip. He made a whip. Yeah, he is in it in this moment. And and Jesus here, this is one of the this is one of the four stories told in all four gospels, or, or one of just a few stories told in all, all, all four gospels is what I meant to say. Um, and it's interesting because in the other three gospels, uh, Sarah mentions John's a little bit different. In the first three gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the Synopt. Synot- Gospels, uh, the stories play out fairly similarly, in a similar order, in similar language, and all that. John tells a very different tale. And the fact that he tells this story, and the other three also do, is unique. Uh, Most of the stories they tell, he doesn't tell, and he tells many of his own. But he places it in a very different place. In all the other three Gospels, this is told um, in the last week of Jesus' life. He walks into Jerusalem, he turns over tables, and it's part of what precipitates his arrest and crucifixion and all that. And yet John tells it at the very beginning of his story of Jesus. One of two things is happening here. Either Jesus wrecked the temple a couple times in his life, that's possible, and there's uh, things we could understand from that, or uh, John is taking liberties as an author telling us a story about this man, Jesus, and it's not necessarily taking place. He's not necessarily laying it out for us in chronological order. That's entirely okay. Either of those situations are okay. But we read in all four of these Gospels about Jesus entering the temple, turning over tables, and creating quite a scene. And so Jesus wasn't the only one going to Jerusalem at this time. This is the Passover. It's one of the big festivals of the Jews, of the Israelites. And, and so there's Passover day, and then there's the, the festival of unleavened bread that it, it extends for seven days after it. So it's a, a week long festival. It's a really big deal. And it's all about remembering God's deliverance, um, of Israel out of Egypt, specifically the last plague. The last plague where the Israelites were told to sacrifice a lamb and then to paint the blood over the doorpost. And then the angel of death would pass over those houses that were listening to God's instruction. 
And so thus you have the Passover. And then there were, the Israelites were given instruction to, to leave quickly without letting your, your bread rise. Not, they didn't have time to let their bread rise. And so they ate unleavened bread during that journey. And so you have these big festivals that remind the Israelites what God has done. And so what would happen is you'd have these massive crowds coming to Jerusalem. I mean, some estimate as many as, as like 10 times the normal population at one given time um, in Jerusalem. And so as you can imagine... It was a big deal for the people who lived there. Um, not only were there massive family reunions and celebrations, but everyone needed to, to eat. Everyone needed to be housed somewhere. It was an economic boom for the, the city as well because people were, were eating and, and, and staying, staying places and also purchasing um, animals for the temple worship for the sacrifices there. Let's dive back into the text and let's look at some of the particulars as we continue today. In verse 13, uh, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all of them from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered what was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So first let's understand what people, what people are doing. So they're, as they're coming to worship in Jerusalem, um, they bring their money with them and from all these different places. And so once they arrive, they exchange that money into the currency used to, to purchase animals, to purchase food, and also to pay the temple tax, which everyone was required to pay. And so, there, it was normal to have places where people would exchange money and w- would purchase animals. What wasn't customary is for those things to be happening in the temple courts. And um, the way, I don't have a diagram or anything, but the way the temple courts were set up, they had, um, the center was the Holy of Holies, but no one was allowed except the high priests once, once a year. And then they had different courts for different people. And the outermost court was called the court of Gentiles. And so they, the Gentiles, those who were not Jewish, were not Israelite, could not go past that court. Now, the story doesn't tell us where in the temple courts these um, vendors and money exchangers were set up. But if they were in the temple courts, they had to at least have been in the court of the Gentiles. Maybe further on in the, the next court would have been the court of women. And so we know that that court, the purpose of which was prayer and worship, was full of, of animals and full of tables and vendors. And in the excitement and the chaos and the economic opportunity of this festival, we know that the religious system there was missing the purpose of the, that temple court. We're missing the point. Instead of a place of prayer and devotion where people were invited in to pray to God, they turned it into a chaotic marketplace. Each year we have a big fair here at the fairgrounds, right? Have you guys been to that? You probably have. I don't like it very much. 
Um, it's just not that much fun. Uh, but probably the section I like least is walking through all the livestock and animals, uh, the smells and the chaos. Some people really like that. I know. Yeah. There's often someone yelling on a microphone, auctioning things off, auctioning animals off. It's absolute chaos. And, and I see in this text the story of Jesus walking in and seeing what is intended to be a house of prayer uh, in absolute chaos and turmoil. He, he calls these people, uh, he calls this place a den of robbers. You've turned God's house into a den of robbers. You know, uh, it, it's interesting because as people approach the temple, you mentioned the money exchange, and uh, people would come from all sorts of nations, especially if this is happening in the Gentile courts, like we think that it is. People have come from, you know, hundreds of miles away. Uh, they've traveled this long distance to be here. They couldn't bring animals for sacrifices, and so they have to to exchange money, particularly because the temple would only receive temple money. It had to be exchanged to be received in the temple. The temple would not receive a coin that has a picture of Caesar on it, right? This is idolatry. And so they had to exchange money to even begin this process. So at exorbitant rates, money is being exchanged. And then animals sold to these people that have traveled for days and weeks to get here to make their sacrifice and participate in Passover. Jesus walks in and he sees this scene and he's enraged, right? Uh, He starts turning over tables and calling them out. This is intended to be a place of prayer. And what's, what's most fascinating to me and challenging to me in this text is to think that the Gentiles are only allowed in this one section of the temple. The closest they will ever get to the temple in the presence of God would be in this courtyard. And imagine a person coming in to pray to have that quiet space in reverence uh, in the temple and to be surrounded by that chaos. You know, you mentioned the den of robbers. So in, in Luke 19, that's um, we hear different phrases than in John, the, st- the version that we read. So in Luke 19, Jesus uh, references Jesus' words, for, and he, Jesus is going to quote Isaiah 56. And I don't have it up here, but I want to read Isaiah 56, 7. It says this, this I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, for all nations. And here in this one spot where all nations were allowed, that's where this was happening And it's so profound to me how there's so many layers in this story, Um, just the cultural things that are happening that we have to dig a little deeper to see. Um, Bias and prejudice is often subtle, and sometimes it's not so subtle. This was not so subtle, and yet it could be easily missed. And, and this is something that is so important as we, as we look at scripture, as we, as we think about God's relationship with Israel, especially, that God chose Israel so that God could bless all nations. So that not to make Israel special or better than anyone else, but rather to be, that Israel would be the conduit of God's blessing to all nations. And so the fact that there's this marketplace in the court of Gentiles is a really big deal. 
The temple, the central place of worship of Israel's identity, has been turned into a den of robbers as opposed to a house of prayer. And you hear the very personal nature in which Jesus takes this offense. He he calls it my father's house. You know, there's things that you allow in your house, and there's a lot of things that you don't allow in your house. I mean, think about your personal space, right? We protect it. And we care about it. And there are things that do not belong. And Jesus speaks in these familial terms about what's happening in this moment. He speaks of his father's house. This is God's place in this world. And look at what you have invited into it. And so there's this moment. I've, I've always thought it's fascinating the way John tells this story. It says he made a whip. I mean, this is premeditated. This isn't Jesus flying off the handle in a moment when he sees it. Like, he sits down, and he takes the time, and he thinks through, what am I going to say and do in this moment? And we see what he says and what he does in this moment. He tears it apart. This is not the purpose of my father's house in this world. His disciples remembered in verse 17 that is written, zeal for your house will consume me. And that's another quote from the Old Testament. It's so interesting to look back and kind of see the context around that. That's actually from Psalm 69. It's a Psalm of David, and David's crying out to God because of the opposition from his enemies. And David writes, I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my mother's children, for zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you insult you fall on me. And as I read that, I was like, oh, wow, the parallels here with Jesus. Jesus, a foreigner in some ways. Jesus came to that which was his own, we read in John 1, and yet they didn't recognize him. And here he's coming to his father's house, his house of prayer, and it's not a house of prayer. So what does this mean? Zeal for your house will consume me. The zeal is the idea of focusing all your energy and passion and time. And, and Jesus is passionate here about creating space for the worship of God. He's passionate about creating these spaces. And so as he walks in, he's like, you guys are missing the point, and this has to change. So Jesus has walked into the temple. He's thrown over the tables. There's people on their hands and knees trying to gather the coins that they had collected that day. There's animals running out of the building. You can imagine the chaotic scene. This is in the middle of Passover, right? Numerous, numerous peoples from all over have come to Jerusalem, and I can only imagine the way everything has just... uh, come to a halt, an absolute standstill as everyone watches what's taking place in this moment. So in verse 18, the Jews responded to Jesus, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? But um, the temple that Jesus had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. It's very telling here um, with the religious leaders as Jesus comes in and points out how the temple is being misused. They don't seem to give that any consideration. At least none of that conversation is, is recorded. What they do respond with is questioning Jesus' authority questioning his his power like what what gives you the right to point out how 
the temple is being misused. And I couldn't help but think about that in terms of, of human nature and, and my nature and all of us. Like sometimes when people call us on the stuff in our life that's not right, um, a, a, an automatic defensive mechanism is deflection. Like, well, what about you? Instead of actually taking the time to look and to, to be reflective. And we see here how that's the, that's the response of the religious leadership. They're like, well, who are you to point this out? What gives you the authority? Not even really giving any consideration to how the temple should be used. Absolutely. So they ask him, by what authority would you do this? And Jesus responds, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. It's an interesting little statement because I think from Jesus' perspective, the physical temple had been destroyed, right? Like he walks in and he finds it in absolute chaos and turmoil. There is nothing, there's the prayer that's supposed to be happening here is not, and all these other things are. And so they ask about this uh, destruction, but he speaks of a different destruction. He speaks of the his crucifixion. He speaks of his death. This temple, Jesus' body, will be destroyed and then risen again in three days. You see, what Jesus is describing, my authority to do what I'm doing in this physical temple, has to do with the fact that this temple is a thing of the past. In me, uh, Jesus, in Jesus, uh, the temple was taking on entirely new meaning and understanding. Jesus' body would be that temple. Um, now, this isn't the first time we've heard temple language in the Gospel of John. In fact, in John 1, uh, he describes Jesus as the Word of God that was an agent in creation, and he, then he describes that Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. Now, the tabernacle was the original temple. It was the mobile temple. It was a tent system that allowed the Israelites, as they traveled from from Egypt to the promised land, and even before the temple was built in the promised land, that they would set up this tent and set up this place that was a a miniature version, a a temporary version of the temple in which God's presence would dwell. The Ark of the Covenant would be there and God's presence would dwell. And so John describes, uh, Jesus came into this world and tabernacled amongst us. He is that place where God's presence would would dwell. And if there's any place on earth that God's presence would be, just a imagine in Jesus incarnate, God in human flesh walking on earth. Jesus, the new temple, walks into the temple. Now later in scripture, this is a little side note, um, we will, uh, and we won't go too far on it, but later in scripture, we are described as that dwelling place of God, that temple of God, that as followers, as followers of Jesus, as the Holy Spirit dwells in our life, understand we are the place where God meets with humanity, right? God meets with us literally in us in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is enlightening to us too. John is telling us, remember early in his gospel as opposed to at the end, he's reminding us Jesus is this new temple. Jesus is the place in which God meets with humanity. And then John the Baptist, which we already talked about, uh, when he sees Jesus, he says, behold the Lamb of God. So Jesus is the temple and also the lamb. Yes, the sacrifice that will take place in that temple. So we continue in the story, uh, verse 23. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people, and he did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. 
Jesus performed many signs, and many people believed. Uh, I'm curious, after having thrown over the tables and created this huge scene, in the next moment, is Jesus healing a leper, right? Is he giving someone sight that had been blind like we see him doing throughout his ministries? John doesn't record for us the details of what happened in this moment, but he said he performed many other signs, and people began to believe in him. But it's fascinating because in that previous section, back in uh, verse 22, uh, it had said um, it was after his crucifixion and resurrection um, that the disciples recalled what he had said, and they believed in the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Uh, What I see in this text is this um, ongoing process of belief. People saw the signs, they saw the the miracles that he's performing, and they believe in him. This is someone special. But it's only in hindsight that we're able to put together all the pieces of a puzzle, understand all those things. Think about any major experience in your life. As it's developing, we only have as much information as has happened in that moment. It's in looking back on that that we can really see clearly what is happening here. So John is highlighting for us. Remember, he says uh, his purpose in writing this gospel is that we might believe. His purpose is to write this, that we might believe in Jesus. And we see in this gospel these three different levels of belief. We see those that see the signs and they're like, wow, this, is, this might be the Messiah. And, and there's that moment of belief. We also see those that totally reject him and, and fight against him. Eventually we'll have him crucified. And thirdly, we catch these glimpses of in resurrection, people came to realize all those little pieces and how they fit together and who Jesus truly is. And that's such an encouraging thought for for me personally, that we don't have to have it all figured out. (laughs) We don't have to know all the right things. Like right now we, we, we believe in Jesus and the Holy Spirit will continue to deepen our understanding and to draw us closer I've always thought it would be interesting to get to uh, walk with Jesus and and to have been there 2,000 years ago and see him and witness him. But the thing is, I'm a pretty dense person. There's a good chance I would miss it in the moment, right? But we are those people that get to look back at the witness of John and many other people that walk with Jesus. We are those people that get to hear all the pieces of the puzzle and put it together. And, And as John invites us in this text to believe in him and to find life in Jesus. It's interesting, as we're talking about belief, the the Greek word for belief is pisteo, and it's translated, it's in here a a couple times, but it's translated differently in this passage, so I just wanted to point um, that out. So when it says that many people saw the signs Jesus was performing and believed in his name, there's that word, believed. And then in verse 24, it says Jesus would not entrust himself to them. It's that word in trust is the same Greek word to, to believe. So it's interesting. It's like, well, what, what's going on there? And then further verse 25 says he did not need a testimony about humanity. He did not, no one needed to tell him what humans were like. Like Jesus knew human nature. And so it's like, it's saying many trusted in Jesus, but Jesus did not trust in them. And just wanted to, to think about that for a moment. Because it, even if people were genuinely believing in Jesus, which I believe they were, Jesus knew how easily people could be swayed. He knew how easily um, humanity and, and myself included can misunderstand or ha- come to belief with misguided expectations or or even 
something happen and fall away. And Jesus knew all that. And as he welcomed people's belief, he, he also stayed very focused and faithful to the rescue mission that he was on. And nothing was going to stop him from accomplishing that. So as we begin to conclude today, we'll zoom out just a moment. John is writing this uh, gospel for us as good news about who Jesus is, inviting us to put our faith in him, to believe in him. And in this section of the text, John is beginning to prove all the claims that he made in chapter one about who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. He's the son of God. He's all of this. And to do so, he's speaking of old and new. He's speaking to a Jewish audience or a first century Gentile audience who is very familiar with the roots of their Jewish faith, saying what was will be made new in Jesus. Last week, we looked at Jesus turning water to wine, this idea of Jesus taking uh, the shame of a bridegroom that had failed to prepare for this wedding, taking that shame and instead inviting to joy and celebration. There is new hope and celebration and joy in Jesus. This week, we look at the temple theme that, that tracks throughout Scripture, saying, you used to come to this temple to worship, but understand the temple has come to earth in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit will dwell in us that so we might be the temple of God. We'll go on to talk about worship, what was under an old system, and what is new in Jesus. Old and new is a theme that is playing out for the next number of chapters in John's Gospel here. And I want to ask, what does this, what does this uh, scene teach us about Jesus? There's so many things. The, the thing that really stands out to me is how passionate Jesus is about creating space for people to know God. That Jesus wants people to know God. And the idea of temple is so significant in this, that the temple was where uh, heaven and earth met, that the temple was where the presence of God dwelt, and all previous temples pointed to Jesus, God in human form. And Jesus um, will continue to expand this idea of temple as he promises the Holy Spirit to his disciples and says, the Holy Spirit will, will be in you, the presence of God will be in you. Um, and then you referenced this earlier uh, today in in First Peter. Uh, Peter talks about how we, the church, are living stones being built into a new kind of temple to be a holy priesthood that that facilitates others coming to God. That the reason we're being built up into this new temple is that we might be that temple for the sake of others, that others would come to know God's love and salvation. And so like Jesus, as Jesus followers, we too are called to be passionate about creating space for people to know and to worship God. So what might this text do in our lives as we go from here today? Well, here's one idea of what maybe it shouldn't do. Uh, I've seen this text applied uh, as um, like this justification uh, to metaphorically or physically turn over tables against, you know, the things I don't agree with or believe in life. Please understand, we are not the temple walking into the temple with the authority to do those things. Uh, instead, 
I would take this out of the text. I would challenge us to this in this text today. Jesus is passionate about things not standing in the way of people encountering the presence of God, to live peaceful, prayerful lives in the presence of our Heavenly Father. Jesus is passionate about that, so we see him clearing out the temple that people might again approach and pray and and, and experience the presence of God. There might be some things in our lives that we might pray this week. Jesus, are you ready to to clear that out. Are you willing? Would you come and clear these things out in my life that I might more fully experience the presence of God? And and even just to ask that question is so significant. Our lives are full and busy, and and how often do we pause and to reflect and ask God with um, just honesty and vulnerability and ask God, show me where I've drifted away. Show me what is in my life, uh, be it good or, or, or be it not good. Um, show me what in my life is standing between me and you. What do I need to let go of so that I can wholeheartedly worship? This is, after all, the season of Lent, and so some of us have chosen in this season to be uh, really reflective. Um, It's a season of confession and repentance, turning away from what was and has distracted and turning towards God. Often in the season of Lent, we give something up. We fast from something that we might be reminded of and more fully dedicate ourselves in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. This is a season of turning away from things and towards God, and it's the exact challenge that I find in the text today. And as we make this challenge to ourselves and, and for all of us, I want to acknowledge that it uh, takes a great amount of courage and vulnerability to ask these sorts of questions, to ask God, to ask Jesus, to ask the Holy Spirit, where have I messed up? Show me the parts in my life that aren't good. And to sit in that and to, to look at that, that takes courage and, and vulnerability. But we're called to that and invited to that so that we can repent and so that we can pursue a different way. And I'm so thankful that God does not live far off and we have to do this hard thing on our own, but rather that the Holy Spirit in us is right there with us, guiding us through um, this growing self-awareness. And the Holy Spirit in us is the one who transforms us to be more like Jesus, to look more like Jesus. I'm so thankful that we don't get to do, we don't have to do this alone, but rather we get to do this in, in community with those really close to us and also with the Holy Spirit. This is what we're invited to. Jesus describes the temple as a house of prayer. This too is a place of prayer. And in just a moment, I'm going to close out in a prayer, but it was brought to my attention this morning. Um, someone prayerfully uh, listening to the Spirit this week uh, kept coming back to the idea that this might be a moment, uh, a morning in which people are in need of prayer. And let me just say, we're all in need of prayer, <laughs> every one of us. And there might be really big things going on in life, or there might be just 
smaller things, ordinary things that you'd like to pray with someone about. So this morning at the end of service, after I close out, um, there's going to be a few of us standing up here in this kind of corner of um, uh, the auditorium. And uh, and right behind that is a prayer room, by the way, if you haven't seen that. If you have uh, a desire, that would be a great place to pray as well. But we want to be here and available for prayer, the big things and the small things in life. I'm going to close out with a general prayer over and for all of us, um, but we want to invite you today. As we close out service for the next 15 minutes or so, there'll be people over here that would love to pray with you. So if there's something going on, if there's something that, that God's been impressing upon you, maybe there's been this nagging thing in our mind, the Holy Spirit keeps reminding us of something in our weeks, would you come and pray with us about that? We're going to close out now in prayer. God, we thank you for this day and this opportunity uh, for a story of Jesus and a temple. And with all of the wild and amazing um, out there sort of things, turning over tables and money changers and all that, uh, God, we're thankful for the zeal, the passion that you might be accessible um, in the lives of humanity, in the lives of people in this world. And so today, God, we pray, Jesus, that you would clear out the things getting in the way in our lives of meeting with you, God. Uh, Spirit, we invite you to work powerfully in us. We're thankful for your cleansing and for your invitation. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, friends, with that, we're going to close. If you'd like to join us in prayer, please do. We would love to pray with you for the next few minutes. Uh, Here in about 10 or 15 minutes, we'll get started on Vine 101 in the sunroom as well. So if you'd like to stick around and uh, have a conversation with us there, we'd love to do that as well. Thanks for being here. Have a blessed week.